Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 31. Because of the big news this past week on Brexit, I figured it'd be the ideal topic for a podcast. I know that there's been wall-to-wall coverage on this particular topic. Everything covering the economic fallout and ramifications, the political ramifications. But I think, and and of course I've also seen on uh, social media people discussing how this was drastically different from the situation in the United States in the 1860s when the South decided to leave, and of course Lincoln sent in the army, and that's not happening in Great Britain. So what I want to do is, is discuss how this is similar to what happened in the 1860s, how it's not similar, uh, also discuss the ramifications for this particular move for the 21st century. This is a monumental event in Western civilization. Uh, it's not unique. There have been other secession movements before, and this one's different in that the European Union was forged as an economic co-prosperity sphere, but the ultimate objective, I think, was the creation of kind of a one European government. Uh, I think that was quite evident when there was an attempt to have a European constitution that failed. And so Great Britain has finally decided that this Uh, Union is not working for them, uh, particularly those who are concerned about one issue, and that is immigration and how that is affecting Great Britain. Um, I think that's the issue of the 21st century, and we're seeing it in the United States. It is a a major problem for a lot of people, uh, and this is not new. I mean, we Americans were discussing discussing immigration in the early 20th century. They were discussing it in the middle of the 19th century, and the potential impact even in the early 18th century. Uh, one thing that George Washington said about immigration was that he was fine uh, with immigration, but he never wanted to encourage it, and he, in particular, he didn't want to have a situation where people be, were being dumped in the United States as an entire group, which is exactly what we're doing today. So immigration has always been opposed, and particularly the way we're doing it now, all over Western Europe and in the United States, is a very dangerous prospect. Okay, so that said, I think that's going to be one of the key issues driving these different uh, secession movements. Also, economic ramifications for the European Union and how the British were sending vast amounts of money daily to the European Union— uh, that they don't have to send anymore. They can spend on themselves. So uh, that's also a key question. You know, when you look at uh, the United States, for example, what kind of money the states send to the general government that they could just hold for themselves and use on their own people. So we'll talk about the ramifications for the United States in a few minutes, but I did want to to look at this in historical perspective and how these two things 
are slightly different. When you talk about Texit, for example, in the United States, or uh, the secession of Alabama or Mississippi or Oklahoma or Vermont or California, whatever, take your pick. There are secession movements all over the United States. And how these things would be different, though I don't think uh, the way it could be accomplished would be any different. So Nigel Farage has actually been spent time in the United States. And in one particular case, not long ago, he, he made a speech in Texas where he talked about the fact that Texas, he would love to see Texas be independent of the United States. And um, he said that, look, while you know, he's not an expert on U.S. constitutional law, he knows that there are international laws that would support secession, free secession of Texas, not um, th- that they would support a non-coercive position for the United States in relation to Texas, should Texas decide to declare its independence from the United States. And so that's an interesting question. What about international law? How does this work? Well, as far as the European Union, it's explicitly stated in the, in the Constitution, quote-unquote, for the European Union, that should a state decide to declare its independence from the European Union, it has to be a negotiated settlement. In other words, secession is allowed. And so Great Britain exercised a referendum through and decided through self-determination, through popular vote, to leave the European Union. So now it has to be done. The European Union has to negotiate a withdrawal And in that particular way, Great Britain will be free from the Union. Now, people would obviously say, well, Great Britain at one time was an independent nation-state. It gave up some of that independence in terms of its own economy and in some ways foreign policy by deciding to get involved with the European Union. It was just resuming that independent status, and that's completely different from the states in the United States, which... um, never had that opportunity. Well, I would say history is not on that side. And I'm going to point... Now, of course, in the U.S. Constitution, secession is not explicitly stated as a possibility, though it's not explicitly stated as... or it's not explicitly denied by the Constitution either. And I've already done a podcast on is secession legal. Uh, So I've already discussed that issue in in a little bit of detail. But I'm just going to bring this up in terms of that particular position. The founding generation thought that secession was perfectly possible. And how do we know this? Well, we know this because on several occasions, 1794, 1798, 1800, 1803, and 1815, it was openly discussed. Actually, from 1812 to 1815. It was openly discussed, and the people that were pushing the agenda were all members of the founding generation. And in fact, if you look at the debates that led up to the Constitution, and if you look at the debates during the Constitution itself, there was an open discussion about secession because they talked about the fear of disunion, meaning that they believed it was perfectly possible and legal because these states, as the Declaration of Independence stated, were free and independent states, and they joined a union— for their common defense and general welfare. Now, that general welfare, what does that phrase mean? Well, obviously, the founding generation, they had defined it. It was commerce, the general welfare of the states, the general welfare of the union through commerce. So it was commerce and defense that 
allow these states or that these states align themselves into a union of free and independent states. It was a federal republic. Not They did not create a nation state. The United States is not the United State, singular. And I think that's interesting because right after this happened, Jeff Sessions of Alabama released a statement where he said uh, he, per- he supports 100% Great Britain's move to exercise its uh, sovereignty and assert its independence from the European Union and that the era of the nation state is not over and saying that the United States will follow course. So he's characterizing the United States as a nation state. It is not. It never has been a nation state. The United States are or is not a nation. It never has been. It's comprised of several nations in nation states and smaller entities. And I think that's something that we have to continually hammer home. This is think locally, act locally. The British thought locally and they acted locally with a goal of controlling their own political destiny and economic destiny. So when you look at these secession movements, 1794, you had two Northerners, Rufus King and Oliver Ellsworth, pull aside John Taylor of Caroline and say, hey, look, John, we see this union's not working. Would you agree with the North seceding from the Union and you could have the government? The South could. This was only five years after the Constitution essentially was put into effect and we had our first Congress. Five years. We've already, we're already talking about secession. Then 1798, you have the Virginia-Kentucky Resolutions. And what's interesting about that is that several men in the founding generation said they didn't believe in nullification because they thought that these states should just secede from the Union. So nullification they didn't think worked, but they thought secession worked. And instead of just saying, well, we're going to nullify that law in our state, well, then just secede from the Union. There were several men that said that. Uh, And so they opposed nullification on that ground, that secession was preferable to nullification. In fact, Jefferson and Madison were pointing out, this is a way to save the Union. This is not disunion. It's a way to save the Union. You just have a state say, well, look, we're just not going to enforce that law within our borders, and that state stays in the Union. So you keep the Union together through nullification or state interposition. Then in 1800, when Jefferson was elected president, or at least during that process, Remember, it took over 30 ballots for Jefferson to be elected. There was open discussion by New Englanders again that they would secede from the Union if Jefferson was elected president. And uh, James Byard of Delaware knew this, which is why he orchestrated Jefferson's election. Um, He was an independent Federalist, and he said, well, look, uh, I don't think that's a good idea at this point. How about we just elect Jefferson Uh, and see what happens, because he had assurances from Jefferson and one of Jefferson's lieutenants, through a Jefferson lieutenant, that uh, the entire Federalist program would not be eliminated, and he wasn't exactly right. Uh, Jefferson acted very much like a Federalist, particularly in his second term. First term's very good. Uh, I I said that, you know, Jefferson's first term is one of the best in American history in terms of what the president's supposed to do constitutionally. Second term, not so much. But this goes to show that Jefferson was not going to destroy the entire Federalist program. Then in 1803, you have the Louisiana Purchase, and there was open discussion of secession again in New England because these New Englanders thought, well, my gosh, the jig is up. If the Louisiana Purchase is acquired, these are going to be all states. It's going to create states that are going to all align with the South, and we're doomed. We're never going to get our commercial agenda passed We're going to be a a perpetual political minority, and there is no way, no way, that we're ever going to control this government. 
And then you had the very famous Hartford Convention from 1814 uh, to 15, which uh, released a series of resolutions calling essentially for nullification of laws in support of the War of 1812, but also to amend the Constitution. But the interesting thing about that, in 1812, Governor Morris, who was a member of the Philadelphia Convention, in fact spoke more often at the Philadelphia Convention than anyone else, Governor Morris penned, Governor Morris penned uh, what was a document in favor of secession, uh, again, written in 1812. You can find this thing online. Um, it's actually entitled um, An Address of the People of the State of New York on the Present State of Affairs. And he openly declares that the Union can be dissolved and should be dissolved. I think he's, he's coming very close to saying that in this particular address. But this is Governor Morris. This is the nationalist at the Philadelphia Convention saying, uh, yeah, I think secession is highly possible and legal. So um, it's interesting how we, of course, these, with only in one example in that list that I just gave you, 1798, were Southerners even interested in secession? The, one of the most important individuals who was talking about secession in 1798 was Nathaniel Macon. And uh, he said, look, I mean, look, uh, nullification is a, is a silly idea, just secede. Uh, and John Randolph of Roanoke essentially had the same position. But in all other instances, 1794, 1800, 1803, 1815, 1812 to 1815, it was New Englanders who were pushing secession. Uh, Daniel Webster made a very famous speech in 1812 where he started talking about secession. So secession was openly considered in the early Federal Republic by Northerners. And so it's really surprising. Then, of course, as you shift forward and you start moving forward in time, you start seeing secession discussed by the second generation of Americans. You see it in the 1830s. Uh, you see it by abolitionists in the 1840s. Southerners, again, it's the third generation of Americans now in the 1850s. But it's openly discussed. Everyone thought it was possible because the Constitution doesn't deny it. And remember, the Tenth Amendment clearly says all powers not delegated to the central government are reserved to the people of the states uh, respectively, the states of the people of the states, respectively. So what that says is that if secession is not explicitly denied in the Constitution, then that power is retained. And I'll often say, you know, the the legislative powers in the Constitution are granted, and a granted power can always be rescinded. And I think that's something that we have to understand. If uh, if I am someone who has the power to grant authority to do something, let's say I, I'm a professor, and I say, students, you can grade your own papers and then I get all the papers back and they're all 100%, I can rescind that power I, that I granted and grade the papers myself and say, no, this is not right. I still have the authority to do it because I am the sovereign in that particular situation. And so the sovereign grants the authority and the sovereign, sovereign still retains that authority and can resume that power if it chooses to do so. So I think that there's, um, there's no doubt that the founding generation thought that this union— was just that, a union of independent states, and that that union could be broken apart if the states decided to do so. So, the one thing that I think is very interesting about this process, and the way the founding generation looked at this too, there are some similarities in secession movements in the United States and what happened in Britain, Great Britain, and that is self-determination through popular government or popular 
uh, referendum. And how did it work in the United States? Well, when it actually happened in 1860 and 61, the people of those states called conventions, and then those conventions voted for secession. They were properly elected conventions. It was the voice of the people that did this. They were called for a specific purpose. This is exactly how we can amend the Constitution. This is exactly how states can amend their own constitutions. This is what happened in 1814 with the Hartford Convention. This is what happened in 1787 with the Philadelphia Convention. Again, a voice of the people. People, delegates are called for a specific purpose, and they represent the voice of the people. This is not an act through a legislature. This is an act through the people themselves exercising self-determination. And so in our particular situation, should a convention be called in any state for any particular reason, and it votes on any particular issue, that is the voice of the people, and it should be binding on that state and on the United States as a whole. The people of, not, not in terms of, you know, if Oklahoma, for example, said it's going to secede, it's not binding on the rest of the United States to secede, but it is binding on the rest of the United States, the people of the United States, or the people of the states in the United States, to, to recognize that voice as valid and negotiate it. No one's advocating violence. This is all about the voice of the people. And not everyone in that particular state might agree with it. Not everyone in the southern states agreed with secession. I mean, there, were, there was opposition to it in several states. But it was binding once it was made. That decision was made. And I think the thing that you can get out of that more than anything else is that the voice of the people was ignored in the 1860s by the North. This was not a government by the people, for the pe- of the people, by the people, and for the people. Uh, when you put the union back together, a large percentage of the population was coerced to stay in that particular union. So anytime you have a voice of the people, in the case of Britain, a referendum that allowed for Britain to secede from the European Union, in our case, in the United States, you had the voice of the people through conventions saying we are going to leave the Union. By conventions, the states could abolish the entire Constitution. They could just say, look, the Constitution, that Constitution is gone. That's exactly what happened in Philadelphia, and that's exactly what happened in the ratification conventions that were called afterwards to give, as Madison said, the Constitution its life and validity. The conventions were the voice of the people on a particular issue, And how that Constitution was argued, it would be interpreted once it was put into effect, was what we should follow when we look at the Constitution. That's the original Constitution. So the voice of the people has been heard in Britain. The voice of the people was heard in the United States in the 1860s. The voice of the people was heard in the United States in 1788 when they decided to create a new, uh, stronger union. The union hadn't changed. Uh, It was still a union. Now, the founders said a more perfect union, but a union of what? Of states, just like it was under the Articles of Confederation. So some would argue, actually, the Constitution is a secession from the Articles of Confederation. In some ways, it was. I mean, they're, they're still forming a union of states, but what happens if some states don't join? Remember, Rhode Island and North Carolina did not join the union right away. They waited. So those states were essentially independent. 
Now, I began this podcast, though, trying to, talking about what this means for the future, what this portends for the future of the world. And I think secession and nullification and self-determination is going to be the face of the 21st century. Because what is happening is, uh, I think, a cataclysmic shift in how we viewed government in the last 100 years. Really beginning with the progressive era, you saw a push towards a more world-type government. I mean, we had it after World War I with the League of Nations. Then you have the United Nations. You've had the European Union. You've had a push for bigger and bigger states. In fact, the push has been for a one government of the world. And I think that particular position is being undermined and destroyed. And what's going to happen in the future is there's going to be a push for peoples all over the world. It doesn't matter where they are to exercise their right of self-determination. And if you look at what's happening now, I mean, Great Britain leaves, and now they can control their own destiny. But you look at Italy. There's always been a strong secessionist movement in northern Italy. And in fact, Italy is talking about trying to renegotiate their position, at least northern Italy, in this European Union. It's the rich part of Italy. The southern part is a drag on Italy. And so northern Italy has long wanted to break apart Italy. Now remember, Italy was only created in the 1860s, actually 1861, uh, now, of course, you had a unified Italy during the Roman Empire, but after that happened, northern Italy became very wealthy, and southern Italy you know, lagged behind, and so you had this unification movement in 1861 accomplished through, through essentially blood. Germany was unified in, in uh, the 1860s, again, through blood, iron, as Bismarck said, you know, blood and iron. Uh, so you had a unification movement there. So these modern nation-states that Sessions talked about, I mean, this is a relatively new creation, 150 years. And for much of German history, you had independent kingdoms, independent states, essentially, in a loose confederation. And perhaps Germany is going to look at that at some point. Uh, Italy is definitely looking at it. Then you have the secession movement in Catalonia, where people in uh, in Spain, are talking about having their own independent country. And Catalonia has always been more French than Spanish. The French themselves are talking about getting out of the European Union. Scotland, of course, has had a referendum on independence. It failed, but there's open discussion about it. And people saying, we want to be an independent Scotland. Now, it's interesting. Scotland had a large vote for Remain. Uh, and that's because the independence movement in Scotland is... It's very left-wing, and you have a lot of labor groups in Scotland, and the labor groups are behind Remain. Uh, so I think that influenced the Scottish vote. Uh, and then you have Quebec, which, according to the Canadian Constitution, Quebec can declare its independence at any time. They can vote on it every so often, and it's going to come up for a vote again. And it narrowly lost in the 1990s. A lot of people don't realize that, but Quebec almost became independent in the 1990s. And I remember when that was going on, the... Canadians, the uh, British Canadians, were essentially saying, how dare these idiot Quebecers, uh, who do they think they are? They're not smart enough to do this. And I think that's the, that's the interesting thing about all of this, all of this, is that the people that are for independence and self-determination are characterized as hicks, hayseeds, idiots. You know, Nigel Farage, I just uh, read an article on Slate calling him an idiot, uh, you know, he's stupid. How did this stupid guy outsmart all these elites, global elitists, 
and really smart people in Great Britain. How did this idiot do that? Well, who's really the idiot? But this is what happens. Uh, and if you look at comments that have been made, either on social media or you know websites or whatever the case may be, after independence, after the British declared their independence from the European Union, well, it's all about race. These people are xenophobic. Uh, these people are stupid. We're going to see what happens. I mean, this is going to destroy the world. Um, that's that's the general uh, tone of the debate. And so uh, you, you have people being characterized as you know, not very smart. This is just stupid. And the people in the United States who pursue independence are all characterized the exact same way. And I think that's, that's indicative of how the left, and generally these people are on the left, how the left view the rest of the world. Anyone that doesn't believe in their, non, uh, their, not, their agenda, which the progressive agenda, which is completely idiotic, and because it's never worked, anyone who doesn't believe in that is an idiot. And so it has to be dealt with as an idiot. But I think what this portends for the future is that independence is going to be something that's on the tip of everyone's tongue in the 21st century. You know, some people have said, well, secession has outlived its day. It's not modern. It's absolutely modern. I think this is what young people, and this is some of the podcasts, you know, think locally, act locally. We don't need you. Some of the things I've talked about. Is secession legal? Uh, these are things that are on the tip, particularly of young people's tongues. They, they recognize that the system is broken, that the political class is failing them, and that they don't need it anymore. They're perfectly willing to go on their own. Now, not all young people. A lot of young people are perfectly fine with dependence because that's essentially what you are when you're tied into the state. You're dependent. And dependence is easier than independence. There's no doubt about it. But I think a lot of people are recognizing that the state has been shown as uh, illegitimate and unresponsive. And the British people exercise their right of self-determination to get out of the European Union. I think you're going to see it more. The European Union is going to fall apart. Uh, I think that even some of these states are going to start looking at themselves as maybe we're too big as well. Maybe there will be a Scottish independence movement. Now that they're out of the European Union, maybe Scotland will call it a referendum and say, we don't want to be part of the British government anymore. Uh, we wanted to stay in the European Union. Maybe they go their own way. So this idea that has supposedly been discredited as foolhardy, stupid, it's been shown it doesn't work, it can't happen, blood solved the, the question in 1865, simply not true. It's never been solved because you always have, and as the, as the world moves forward, you've always had people who believe in the right of self-determination. And I think that is going to be the key moving forward in the 21st century. So Brexit, I think, is a, an event that shows something, shows uh, a movement that has more to come for the people of the world and all over the world. I mean, this is not just in Europe, but all over the world. I think you're going to see it. And what issues are behind it, whether it's immigration, economics, whatever the case may be, it really doesn't matter because at the end of the day, the key is self-determination. If the people of an area want to declare their independence, now, you have to argue, you know, of course, London's trying to secede from Great Britain now, and I don't think that's possible. But uh, there would be the purists who would say, well, then London should be able to secede from Great Britain as well. That's a, that's a discussion that 
could be had. And, um, you know, these are philosophical questions and political questions, and that's a discussion that could be had. But at the end of the day, self-determination, I think, is the standard for the 21st century. And we're going to see it many, many times, and people should embrace it. Because we, and particularly in the United States, we don't have a nation state. The United States is not a nation state. It's comprised of free and independent states, of free and independent people, who through convention, if they wanted to, could, could destroy the entire Constitution, scrap it, resume their status as independent states. They could replace it with nothing. They could replace it with nothing. The evidence is all on the side of self-determination. It's just time to be educated and understand that. Think locally, act locally, improve your own backyard, improve your own household, become independent, and start looking at these political solutions that make sense. And it's peaceful. And that's the ultimate goal, is a peaceful resolution to problems that plague the people of the world. Why would we want to force somebody to live like us? Or why would you want to force someone to live like you? If you're in a voluntary political community, you should, that community should reflect your interests for all peoples of the world. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.